This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politcoast. Today is April 9th, 2020, and this is episode 184. I'm Scott Lundebaum. And I am David Mosscroft. Thank you for joining us again, David. Oh, my pleasure. On today's show, we'll be discussing how political decision-making happens in a time of crisis. But first, we have to thank those who continue to help make this show possible. Currently, 90 people contribute in every month. And we're now at uh, $278 US every month. And that's really important because it helps us uh, keep the show going and pay our editors. And in particular, we want to thank everyone who's able to stick with us through these uh, tough times. And we definitely understand if you need to put a pause on your support. Uh, but please just give us a heads up. And for the duration of this crisis, we've opened up what is normally just our patron Slack to our, all our listeners. You can visit legendbootmedia.ca to fill out an invite request if you want to join. As well, you can follow our Twitter at Pod, where most days we are live tweeting the press conferences that are happening, including the uh, coronavirus updates from Dr. Bonnie Hendry. Uh, be a little off and on this week, just because uh, both of us have had uh, other things staying us away, but uh, we intend to stick with it through this whole thing. So... Uh, Look for more of that next week. And finally, Politoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politoast enter the offer code CITIZEN, all lowercase, for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free hyphen trial. Well, let's jump into our main discussion for this episode. So, David, you're a political scientist as well as a frequent media commentator. And one of the things you've written a lot about is how political decision making happens. And so I kind of want to get your thoughts on, you know, what's happening now and how that changes the normal political process. Well, it it simultaneously changes everything and yet ought to change uh, nothing. And by that I mean the principles of good political decision-making generally apply. Deliberation, evidence, knowing where the cognitive biases are and trying to root them out, input and responsiveness, and through the lens of deliberation ideally. So that's at both the level of the of the citizen, but of course at the level, also at the level of the policymaker. Now, the the difference in this case is that everything is sped up, and so speed trumps perfection right now. And there's going to be a trade-off between the depth and, in some cases, the quality of those engagements, because it's crisis mode. But it doesn't mean you can't still make a good political decision, which is to say a rational decision based on reasons and evidence. It just means that you have to speed that process up. You're going to probably be more prone to make mistakes. And and that's fine. So I think everyone understands that. I'm certainly not willing to abandon those principles right now, but I'm certainly willing to give decision makers a little slack for the time being, given that we live in a democracy and they'll later be held accountable. Right. And one thing we've seen is that uh, a lot of the stuff that's getting rolled out is being revised within days of when the announcement is. And unlike normal times, there isn't this huge backlash that you'd expect if a government kept changing its mind on you know key policies over the course of a week. Yeah. And there's there's... That's one of the unusual bits about this whole thing, and unusual but encouraging. Another one is that you're seeing unlikely allies who push back, I think, gently and productively. For instance, today, Pierre Polyev from the Conservative Party of Canada and um, 
one of the left leaning attack dodge would probably be the way to describe him yeah he's usually the pit bull although he was constructive today and he overlapped with one of some left leaning organization who's which one escapes me at the moment uh Paul, canadian center for policy that's alternative right. yeah the ccpa that's exactly it uh, in saying that um you know bonuses shouldn't be paid out right now to to ceos during this time yeah, and uh, here in BC, the uh, opposition parties have basically, uh, I don't want to say have been silent, but have uh, adopted an approach that is very collaborative and supportive of the government, which is not something you're used to seeing. No, no, no. And I mean, look, there there are moments, there are, are real head-scratching moments. I mean, we'll call what feels like a decade ago, but it was really just a couple of uh, several days ago, the Liberal government tried to push through some fairly heavy-handed legislation that gave them some sweeping powers during the crisis, very, very quickly backed down from that. And there, there was a lot of speculation about what the nature of that endeavor was, but it really seems like it was just a thoughtless overreach, and they backed down quickly. So there's certainly still a role for the opposition parties, and there's obviously still a need for transparency. But one of the points I keep hammering on is, while we do need those transparency and accountability right now and there are things we ought to police very carefully especially the expansion of the surveillance state there's going to be accountability when this is all over as well by way of elections we can we can still do a modified version of accountability and transparency now still robust but cooperative and then have accountability at the ballot box and in some ways, what you're seeing right now is an idealized form of what we want all the time, <laughs> constructive engagement in what is a pursuit of the general good, right? I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we could have that all the time? Yeah, too bad, too bad it takes a crisis for that to happen. Exactly. And you see, you know, again, I worry about things. I worry when there's too much friction, but I also worry when there's too little friction because the friction keeps governments from doing stupid things it keeps them from overreach it helps hold them accountable it also produces better decisions by way of introducing alternative perspectives Uh, i i worry when there's too little friction but in a time of crisis like this the goal is to get measures passed fast and we can hold people accountable at the ballot box right well this government's moving very quickly on a lot of things but one of the things we normally want in our decision-making is to have a process that is responsive to what the citizens' interests and desires are. How do we maintain that while we're running at you know 100 miles an hour to just trying to get uh, policies out the door to kind of keep everyone uh, from suffering too much? Well, I don't think you... you... Well, I, I suppose in one sense you do it the same way you always do it, which is responsiveness is both a short-term and a long-term process, right? It's both about gathering perspectives while you're producing policy and setting agendas for the long-term. Obviously, the the former is going to be a lot more difficult than the latter in this case, which is fine. I mean, you, you know, people are themselves just figuring out what they think is appropriate. By the time they have, it's too late, right? By the time you've decided to mail checks for instance, you know, or, or introduce a small business wage subsidy or sorry, a, a, a wage subsidy, you, there's a lag time between that decision and the time we can actually get money in people's hands. So there isn't a lot of time to deeply consult. And I think most people understand that. And that's the moment where you hope that representatives, civil servants, thought leaders, quote unquote, uh, journalists, are thinking this through and, and communicating that quickly. So that perspective gets on the table. And then as we think about long-term decisions, then we can get into a more robust consultative process. But in the moment, it's just speed trumps, as I said before, speed trumps perfection. Speed also trumps deep consultation. The responsiveness will come when this is all done. And that's the thing to watch, is what goes on to the agenda today that's going to stay there. The, the universal b- basic income, I think, is one of those things that's now on the agenda in a way that it hasn't been in a long time. Yeah, we've kind of not quite done a full redesign, but definitely put in place a massive new uh, social program that wasn't even being discussed two months ago. And the long-term implications of that, I think, are going to be interesting to watch. 
I think so too. And I, and I think, you know, looking back through history, you see these critical junctures emerge and often they are because of crises. They're not, they're not asked for, but they're still opportunities, right? I mean, the second world war was a critical juncture. The depression, the great depression was a critical juncture. Both of those things contributed to the production of the welfare state and to the regulative state and so on and so forth. Nobody would have asked for the war. Well, nobody in the democratic Western world outside of a couple countries wanted the war. Uh, nobody wanted the depression, but they arrived and we did something with them. And that that's going to be the same case here, I think. So it, the question then becomes, okay, well, as we're looking beyond this exact moment when, when we've stabilized things, what kind of world do we want to build after that? And again, UBI is one of those policies that I think is going to get some serious debate now, but we'll continue uh, down the road because when this is all done, we're going to look at ourselves and say, well, how do we prepare for this in the future? So that if this happens, we're better prepared, both in the sense of response to a pandemic protocol, but also in creating a state where people are protected from the worst of this, which is a welfare state. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of, I think that's going to have to change after this as well as lessons learned that from, the mistakes that we're no doubt making along the way. Uh, but before we really get into that, one other thing I'm curious about in terms of political decision-making is how do you get the buy-in for a situation like this where if you do the successful intervention, it looks like you've overreacted because the case numbers are so low. And you're seeing this a bit with the, well, we should reopen up the economy because only you know X number of people have died whatever that number is. And, you know, this isn't worth keeping it down because, you know, oh, we're, especially here in BC where it's, we've managed to plank the curve at least so far. It doesn't actually look that bad when you look at the raw statistics, but that's only because we've had this very strong response that can often look like an overreaction. So how do you get that buy-in when the, uh, it's hard to necessarily understand it for a lot of people. Well, the first thing is you, you accept that you're never going to get everybody. I mean, that's true of almost everything. You're never going to get everybody on board. There's always going to be someone who says, Oh, this was overblown. There's always going to be someone who says, okay, well we've, we've won. Can we go back to life as usual? But they're going to be a minority. I think what you got to do is get the message out now as people are doing that this isn't over, and even when it looks like it's over, it's not over yet. You know, I, I have a lung issue which makes me high risk and keeps me inside and also leads me to getting lung infection. I mean, during this. It, but it also leads me to get lung infections. So I take antibiotics from time to time. And what's the first thing they tell you when you take antibiotics? Take all of them. <laughs> even when you feel better and you think that you don't need to take the rest of the prescription, take the rest of the prescription. This isn't medical advice, by the way. I'm not that kind of doctor, but that's the kind of <laughs> advice you typically get from your doctor. And that's because even though you're feeling better, the, the, you need to take the entire course to, to reach the point at which you're well again. And that's going to be true with this, both in terms of, of the protocols that we have to adopt to control the spread, but also in terms of economic measures, that the recovery is going to take a lot of time. And even when it looks like we're better, we're going to have to keep at it to get there. And that message needs to be to be communicated. And I think it can be communicated to enough people right now that there'll be a, a sort of consensus that emerges because I, I have to say, I have been a little bit surprised at the degree to which consensus has emerged on a lot of things. Yeah. It's interesting because in some ways you have all many of the same problems, just a, a bit accelerated with uh, climate change compared to this. And where you need to take steps early before it becomes a, a big problem and the effects are really being felt. But we managed to get a broad consensus here, whereas with climate change, we haven't, e even though that same um, cognitive bias is at play that makes people reluctant to uh, take action. Yeah, and, and you'll notice that at the start, it... it there were a number of vocal folks and, and general day-to-day -day folks as well who were skeptical 
They didn't think it was a big deal. And they eventually came around, could see that it was a big deal. The messaging got through. The threat was tangible. And there were enough cues that, and, and enough heuristics, including experts and other folks that they trusted saying so, that they came around and they thought, oh, my Lord, okay, well, we better do something about it. That's like the climate crisis sped up. And you'll notice that one of the critical components of this whole thing is having heuristics that people can trust. And one of those heuristics will be political leaders and business leaders and cultural yeah, leaders. And the, um, at least anecdotally, I noticed everybody suddenly taking it really seriously when uh, I think within a couple hours of each other, Tom Hanks got the disease and the NBA canceled their season. Yeah, Those were kind of the two things that made a lot of people realize how serious it was. That seemed like the day where where things I don't know if I'd call it a tipping point maybe it was a tipping point but that was the point, really yeah, was. yeah exactly exactly and and but you saw that buy-in real quick from across the political spectrum and and people flip-flopped or they changed their mind if you're if we're being a little bit more generous and I'm all for it because if a consensus emerges on something like this then you see action and it's the same on climate even the conservatives now are starting to move on climate, for instance. Now there's a debate about what we should do, but the the doubt that it's a problem we need to do something is there. This is the same thing, just sped up a thousandfold. Well, uh, speaking of uh, what we need to do about it, uh, it's been interesting to watch how the various governments and various places around the world have responded. And it seems to me more than anything else, what's, being the deciding factor where it has gotten under control and where it's spread uncontrollably is that the governments there were able to act quickly, decisively, and able to marshal resources to really combat it. And it's not really like a small government, big government thing, but more a competent government than not. Is that kind of your perspective, what you're seeing, and kind of what can we learn from how various places have responded. What does it tell us about uh, the institutions of those places? I mean, I think right now a lot of people are looking across cases and asking themselves, okay, what is it about these states that allows them to effectively manage the virus, the pandemic? I mean, you know, what is it, what, what does South Korea, New Zealand, and China have in common, Right. And obviously, you know, people want to say, well, it's democracy. Well, it's not democracy necessarily. Uh, Or it is, you know, there's some meme going around, women in charge. I mean, I think that was a bit tongue-in-cheek, but obviously it's it's not that, although it certainly hasn't hurt. It is obviously uh, institutional capacity and institutional coherence and having good political leaders, uh, effective political leaders. And there are different ways to do it. And I think one of the things that we'll see is that there are different ways to, to implement these measures that, and that's where we come back around and see that, Oh, okay. It matters whether you're a democracy or an autocracy or not, because there are, are easier and harder ways to do it. I would much rather be in New Zealand with their measures than in China with theirs. Right. And of course we can bracket the whole question of who's reporting what and how accurate it is. And in the fullness of time, we'll see how, how accurate, for instance, the Chinese reporting was. But it comes back to institutional capacity and a reminder that this is what the state is there for. Um, you know, and having state competence and having state capacity is important. And you know, one of the, the things that I will concede to deficit hawks is that one of the reasons you want a manageable, well, they wouldn't put it this way, I'd put it this way, a manageable debt and deficit they'd probably want no deficit <laughs> but uh, uh, and maybe uh, uh, even more manageable debt. Uh, one of the reasons you have that is so that you have capacity in the future. And Canada has a ton of it because we've been fiscally responsible. Yeah, we can run a deficit that's 60% of GDP without uh, breaking a sweat too much right well, now. That's right. Ex- exactly. Now, of course, we don't want to have to run programmatic deficits for a decade but right now this is about preserve i mean that the the country is on fire and this is about 
you know, putting our resources into um, putting out the fire. And then yeah, later we'll worry about how we pay for those resources because otherwise there's nothing left. You're not going to, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, government finance isn't quite the same as a household finance. And one of those things is that it's more borrowing capacity than actually a saved stock of money for a rainy day fund. But the fact is, it's pouring out there now and it's time to dip into that uh, regardless of what shape that takes. Exactly. And we can afford it and we can manage it and we can fight later about repaying it. Now, of course, the the debate that will come later and should come later is to what degree is it a spending problem and not this. I mean, I mean, deficit spending more generally. And to what degree is it a, a taxation problem and a revenue problem? But that's a later debate we can have. In the meantime, we know that we have the capacity and we're exercising it. And, you know, so that's one part of it. That's the economic side. The, the pandemic protocol side is that we're seeing countries do different things. I mean, whether we like it or not, we're seeing sort of a natural experiment right now in different approaches to pandemic containment. And we're seeing what works and we're seeing what doesn't. And we're learning that countries like South Korea and New Zealand are successful and countries like Italy and Spain, the United States aren't. And that's going to teach us a lot about a number of things, but above all, institutional capacity and, and political competence but also political culture. And I think that's something that's worth paying attention to as this unfolds too. That political culture of what people will tolerate and what they won't, whether or not they trust their institutions or not, that's also going to be critical. And again, I think it's going to make a big difference between, say, New Zealand and the United States. Uh, and then finally, and I'll, I'll close on this point, you also can't overstate the degree to which leaders can actually be important. If Jacinda Hearn was the president of the United States and not the Prime Minister, Prime Minister of New Zealand, the U.S. would probably be in better shape than it is now. Yeah, well, uh, speaking of how the U.S. is doing, that they're in the worst shape, I think, of anyone right now. Their case numbers are the highest. New York is particularly bad hit. Like, if it was its own country, it would be the second largest in the world in terms of number of cases. And the U.S. institutions weren't necessarily doing great before this do you think they're going to be up to the challenge and are they going to end up cracking under it and what would be the long-term concerns or, or consequences that might potentially arise from that it's a tough exam question <laughs> <laughs> i mean the, the the institutional decay in the united states was was well long before as you mentioned before any of this started and, and, you know, from when people talk about Trump, the correct way to talk about him is, is as a consequence of the decline of those institutions, not a cause of. Now, he'll become a cause of further decline, but he was he, initially a consequence he's of He's an accelerant to it. Exactly. And, uh, you know, obviously it's making things worse. Now, there's a bunch of variables, including does he lose the election because of this? And does that give the U.S. a chance to bounce back a little bit? Is there a, a come to Jesus moment after this where the country rallies around a sort of post crisis plan to rehabilitate like people did in, in, in the fifties and sixties, but who knows? But once that decay sets in, it's, it's really hard to get things back and up and running because uh, people don't, trust the system. It doesn't work. The less it works, the less people trust it. Uh, it creates deep divides that, that, I mean, those divides are already there, but they get deepened. That exacerbates distrust. And we're seeing, for instance, that the, the effects, people say that, well, the virus is, is indiscriminate, but it's not indiscriminate. It, it's, it affects the marginalized more than those who aren't marginalized because of socio- economic and social cultural uh, challenges and divides. And, and that's going to, I would imagine further inflame the tensions uh, around the divide between marginalized Americans and those who, who are well off. And none of that seems well poised to, to do well for the United States going into the 2020 election. So I'm, I'm concerned. Yeah, I, I'm fairly concerned as well. I think Canada's probably going to emerge out of this with 
our institutions, if anything, strengthened, and we're going to increase state capacity as a response to this, whereas the U.S., particularly at the federal level, I, I think is going to see a, a pretty bad decline in that, and maybe some of that gets picked up by the states, and you see a, a further decentralization, but I, I am pretty concerned that this is going to end up uh, further weakening the, the already challenged institutions. And, and you're even seeing, I think it was Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, talking about the California nation state, which mm-hmm. probably doesn't bode well for uh, American federalism in the long term. No, it, it, I'm, I, it certainly doesn't. And I mean, look at, for instance, the Democratic primary and voting. Right. And, and imagine we, we take the concern of, well, can you in good conscience have an election right now where people vote in person? Can you say the results of such an election are legitimate? I mean, there's serious concerns about whether or not an election right now would be legitimate. Absent postal ballots, for instance. And you see a political divide on that emerging. And I mean, of course you do. You always do in the U.S., but that's going to be a significant challenge in 2020, in the 2020 election. And, I mean, it already is around the Democratic primary in the U.S. And the American election is already a mess. American yeah, elections I'll, have been fighting with voter <laughs> issues for years. Well, at least with the uh, Democratic primary, it's effectively wrapped up as of yesterday. So uh, there'll, there'll still be some pro- voting, but the uh, number of people trekking down to the polls will hopefully not be nearly as much as they would be otherwise. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I think you're right. And again, I mean, the U.S. Has, has had constitutional stress tests in the past. You know, does Nixon turn over the tapes once the Supreme Court says to him, turn over the tapes? And he did, minus a couple of minutes. <laughs> but they got turned over. Uh, Bush versus Gore in the, in the 2000 election. I mean, Gore made the decision not to further push that or, or to deny the legitimacy of the election, which in some eyes was an attempt to spare the Republic. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you get a Trump v. Biden this time with the uh, current uh, stresses around the Supreme Court and what happened with the um, Merrick Garland seat. Yeah. That, uh, the Supreme Court's institutional legitimacy would survive that. Well, exactly. And it's been 20 years since 2000. And do you think that Bush v. Gore would go anywhere, or sorry, uh, Trump v. Biden would be anything like Bush v. Gore? And, and I think the answer is no. And what do you think the chances are that if Trump loses, he questions the legitimacy of the election? Probably about 80%. Yeah, almost certainly. And so, you know, we, we sort of look at these scenarios that seem extreme and extraordinary and say, wow, that's the stuff of film or television. It's, it's implausible. But history is littered with extraordinary moments that seem implausible if you're looking ahead. But when you look back, are written there on the page. And so you know, countries and republics decay, decline, and collapse all the time throughout history. And I don't think that we should assume that the United States or any country is any different because it's not. The question is, what does the form of that collapse take? And you know, the the fact that the U.S. wasn't strong before is significant because this crisis is putting states to the test. And who knows what's going to come out of that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a real problem down there. Uh, it is, but I, and possibly a problem for us, too. I mean, we've always, for instance, we're also, I mean, IR scholars are talking, international relations scholars are talking about this already, but what does the world order look like? Well, that's what I was just about to pivot to, because... Uh, we, we've seen a lot of those challenges with company or with countries banning medical exports. Uh, the U.S. Canada relationship took a big hit a week ago when Trump uh, banned the export of respirators to Canada, which has since been reversed. But you know, I don't think Canadians are going to forget that for quite a while, and it really does seem like the international cooperation that was in place is breaking down at least a little bit, both with that and the EU's having problems figuring out whether they're going to do a coordinated response or every country is on their own. 
the Shangdian area is pretty much stopped for the time being. Exactly. And of course, you're also going to see, I think, I mean, China was already making, I mean, we can debate whether or not it was a hegemon play, but it was certainly a play to to increase its sphere of influence. I mean, Belt and Road, for instance, is obviously that. I, I think Trump has probably done more damage to the U.S.-Canada relationship in the last couple of weeks than cumulatively anyone has done in 50 years. And it was, it was you know, talking about... Well, I mean, I wonder, I, I, I mean, maybe it was just that we were ready for it already, but I, it was extraordinary to hear an American president muse about sending troops to the border, then deny, you know, try to push around 3M around sending masks. And then we had a shipments diverted that finally got here in some cases. I don't know if they did in all cases. And then of course... I think last I saw 500,000 of the 3 million masks Ontario ordered had arrived. Right. So there you go. And, and I think people right now are extraordinarily sensitive and attuned to to this uh, this crisis and won't forgive that. And, you know, we're processing a lot right now all at once. So it's it's hard to, to take anything. You know, keep in mind, you know, Boris Johnson's recovering. Prince Charles had COVID. These are things that just sort of are peripheral to us. Canada is sending arms to Saudi Arabia again. This stuff is all sort of peripheral in many cases and part of our day. When on any normal time, this would be front and center. So I think when this is all done and we start to assess things, this we're going to see just how significant things like the president musing about sending troops to the border was. And that fallout's going to be rough. Uh, we were already having to worry a little bit. I mean, I've been talking about this for a long time, is that do we really think our future lies with the United States? And if the response is, well, what choice do we have? My, my pushback is that, that's a pretty dire prediction. <laughs> that, yeah, that really it's not because China is the other hegemonic power in there. And it's pretty clear, I think, that we're better off with the U.S. uh being aligned with them than being aligned with China yes. and that the U S interests are much more our interests than what China's interests are. But at the same time, the U S is withdrawing and shattering its alliances. And I don't know, do we get close to the EU sphere? Like it, it's tough. And there's all this whole crisis could have been helped with if, if there was a lot better international cooperation you know if we had better early reporting coming out of china it would have been helpful if there was better coordination in a lot of ways but it seemed like the international institutions we did have weren't as well suited as they could have been yeah but at the same time it's not clear that from how a lot of countries are withdrawn inward that we're going to get a better set coming out of this Oh, yes. And I mean, it's worth keeping in mind. I mean, look, the Chinese, the Communist Party of China is utterly contemptibly guilty of malfeasance and neglect and a, a reckless endangerment of the world and how they treated this virus, especially initially. I mean, the, the Chinese Communist Party, the state, ought to be held accountable for that. And we should never forget that. Uh, and I continue to believe that we, for instance, certainly do overlap in interests more with the United States and certainly with China, but the, with many other countries because of geopolitical considerations of being neighbors of resource considerations and so on and so forth. I, I would never deny that. But I do think it's probably worth poking around and seeing if there are ways for us to maybe take some eggs out of this basket and put them in some others. <laughs> and I wonder how much the world will, will start to further think that when this is, when this is done and look for instance at how the U S has responded to the WHO and wanting to end funding to the WHO. Look, I mean, they've been, they've been pulling out of international agreements and international obligations for, for a long time now. But I mean, during this crisis, it's even further beyond the pale and, you know, American leadership around the world has, to say the least, been a mixed blessing for the country's entire history. But this is something even beyond that, which is saying something. Yeah, it's it's tough. And 
I, I, this is probably just speculation I'm going to be asking of you, but do you have any idea kind of what that uh, post-crisis order is going to shape up to be? I, I don't know. I mean, globally, I, I'll defer to the IR folks who are sorting this out, but I mean, I, I have a hard time seeing the world 30 years from now as anything but multipolar. I, I certainly think that's where we're headed, and that's for the best, I think. I mean, I don't, I don't want a unipolar world. I don't think it's good for anybody. Uh, probably, as you mentioned, there'll be some states that actually consolidate the, their institutions and grow them. And so, on, at an institutional level, as much as the U.S. institutions might further crumble, as you mentioned earlier, I think Canadian institutions might come out of the stronger. State capacity might grow. New Zealand, Germany, South Korea. Of course, the, then point three is what do you do economically? The economic recovery debate is, well, are you going to see a V-curve where you see a, a complete drop, but then a huge rebound like a rocket ship? And that's obviously what people would like to say. I think a lot of people would like to see. And maybe you will, but you, maybe you won't see that everywhere. And then, of course, you've got to pay back all this money at some point, right? If you you can't run, what is it? $200 billion deficits, whatever. Yeah, so um, wow. the, the PBO actually put out, I think it was $183 billion was their current projection from this, uh, which is a lot, and that doesn't include the uh, recovery that's going to follow on after. But with interest rates where they are right now, it's little under $2 billion a year in interest payments. So it's manageable, but once we have to, try and kickstart an economy that's had uh, you know, 20, 30% negative GDP growth, that's might be something else entirely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, this is going to be unprecedented and I think we're figuring it out as we go. I mean, I, we're, you're, and, and you know, it's funny is when you read back through history to talk about the great depression, for instance, these are figures in a history book. I, I don't, I didn't know John Maynard Keynes, uh, you know, I didn't know Hayek. I don't, I, in some cases they were dead before I was born, but the figures today who are figuring this out are people you see. They're people maybe you've, you know, if you're in my business, maybe people you've talked to or currently talked to, right? And you recognize that they are smart human beings with a lot of capacity, but they're figuring it out because we just don't know. And that's, I think, that's going to be true of a lot of countries, but it goes back to the question of, do we have capacity and are our institutions healthy and thank God in Canada, they are. And so I do have hope for us rebounding, um, but there's also going to be a bigger discussion about how we want to live, what we want the, the state to look like, what we want the market to look like. And I come at this from the perspective of, of a market socialist perspective, because that's what I advocate. But I also think that the country is going to have to have a very serious debate about what we want because it shouldn't be a moment where anybody tries to sneak things through by fiat because people are scared. So, you know, will we see, you know, for instance, but for instance, do I think if it comes down to letting a company use money for stock buybacks versus saying, oh, no, no, if you're going to do that, we're going to sell you to their work, to your workers. I know which I prefer. Uh, you know, do we want a, a universal basic income just so that we can level this off in the future and so on and so forth? I mean, those are the conversations we're going to have. And I, I do think you're going to see a rebounding of, of state capacity and, and the welfare state in some form that, that may look a lot like the post-Depression, post-war period. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I think a lot of us, have, most people, including uh, people who spend their time looking at the market and, and trading in it, haven't really wrapped their head around just how big a hit this is going to be. Uh, we're already seeing record numbers of people being laid off. Like if you graph the, oh, my you know, Lord. <laughs> the weekly job claims, it just comple- completely obliterates pretty much every other economic downturn just because of how quickly it hit. And if that lasts for 18 months before, before a vaccine comes, like that's going to be really hard to climb out of uh, without some very serious interventions. And I, I think 
the policymakers are in a headspace that is much more friendly to rapid, large-scale interventions early compared to both 2008 and the Great Depression. Yes. But e- even then, it's it's going to be a tough one. You'll notice that nobody is Herbert Hoover, right? I mean, this is, you know, Hoover, in the case of the U.S. in ahead of the Depression, held out. <laughs> you know, he, was, he was, it took a long time. In fact, they were saying, you know, he was appealing, Hoover was appealing to, to Americans for, for charity rather than statism for a long time. Nobody's going to be a Hoover. I mean, we have learned lessons. I mean, I, I, you know, it's the comparisons are in some ways illustrative, but they have to be put in the context of, of lessons learned, which is, you know, the reason that we might avoid some of the significant challenges of past catastrophes and crises is that we have observed past catastrophes and crises and said, okay, well, we know what we need to do. And I think, again, the speed at which states have moved and continue to move is encouraging. I mean, Canada has put, have, has had two sorties of, of, uh, of measures and is about to run a third. Yeah, I think the U.S. is, for all their problems, are on their fourth big response bill. Uh, well, that's been remarkable. I mean, I, again, I, to, to some some credit is due, Congress moved quickly uh, for Congress. I mean, it was extraordinarily quickly for Congress. There were some shenanigans, but they passed a bill pretty fast. Yeah, it's there are parts that are responding quickly and converse is surprisingly one of them but uh the the question is how long can you sustain it mm -hmm. and and i think you know we're in the initial shock but the decline is a process just as growth is a process i mean it takes time we are in the early stages of this the the arc we don't know what the arc is going to look like because we've never lived through anything like this but we do know there's going to be an arc and that it has, we haven't reached the, the peak of it yet. So who, who knows? But the good news is there's an arc, which means we can figure this out and, and ride it out as we go. One of the challenges will be sustaining the trust, the enthusiasm, the compliance, and the cooperation necessary to produce the outcomes we need to both flatten this curve and to get the economy back up and running when this is all done and I, I will gladly return to the old fights to the degree that we have to once we've done that but in the meantime we need to focus on on keeping that going because if we start to to let up if we take our foot off the pedal well then then we're in big trouble and i think you know maintaining that that commitment especially as we all get tired further tired for the scared is a serious challenge this week is when I noticed people started to talk about what the post-crisis uh, recovery will look like. But before it all be, all the discussion I'd seen had been really focused on what's happening now, what's going on in the next couple of weeks. But something seems to have changed over the last week or so that uh, people are starting to think about, you know, what the after effects are going to be and how we recover and also what the long-term implications on society in general is. And I, I'm not sure if this is going to be one of those cases where it's going to be such a shock to the system, everything changes, or if it's going to be something that accelerates a lot of ongoing trends, but doesn't fundamentally alter course. And I think that's largely going to depend on how long this lasts and how big the shock ends up being. And on what people do. I, I mean, you know, the dice are are in the air. They haven't landed yet, and they certainly haven't come up on one number or another yet. And, you know, I, I think it's a moment where, where people recognize, I mean, organizers, thought leaders, activists, politicians, business leaders, so on and so forth, recognize that as much as we don't know what's going to come of this, we have some control over it. And, you know, we ought to be still having those discussions. And, and one of the things about democracy in general and, and perhaps ours in particular alongside a handful of others around the world is that we have the capacity to have that conversation in a constructive way not as constructive as i might like not as deliberative as or participatory as i might like but we can have them in more or less good faith 
and make a, a decision about what we want to do. And organizers, activists can organize for that to put their their propositions forward. And that's happening. And that to me looks familiar. I mean, we always see that. And there's going to be some perhaps, who knows what's going to happen. You never know where a critical juncture is going to take you, but it's not random and it's not predetermined. You know, take take the black death. I mean, everyone uses this example. It's a little bit imperfect and worn, but the example that often gets used is, well, in the aftermath of the black death in Europe, you had a, a, well, a lot of power in the hands of labor that was had suddenly, first of all, become even more valuable than it was before because of the level of death and destruction, but also a sort of consciousness. And that led through a number of things, including organizing, some sort of proto-organizing, to the emergence of democracy, some form of democracy, right? That was, that was contingent. It might've been otherwise. So that's certainly a possibility, but we have a choice that we can make. It's not that our fate is predetermined because it's not. Yeah. And we'll probably end up doing a a lot in the uh, post crisis recovery. Uh, It wouldn't surprise me if we see some uh, stimulus package that's, 10 to 20 percent of this of pre-crisis gdp which would put a lot of money into the system and you probably need that uh you know shot to to it to kind of get things that have jammed up going again and you know i i hope we uh use that to you know build out the transit infrastructure that we've been under investing in for a while it would be a great time to also tackle the housing crisis by building a lot of uh, new homes that have been needed for a while and we have a shortage of and we're not doing any of that. And people have talked about how the cities are going to take a hit from this because people won't like, you know, being around other people, which is way premature, uh, in my opinion. To, you know, cities well, have I think the opposite. I think people are going to want to be back around people real fast. Yeah, I think there's that too. And also, like, cities survived, you know, the Black Death, the Plague of Athens, the Plague of Justinian, Hiro- the bombing of Hiroshima, uh, the firebomb address. Like, it takes a lot to disrupt a city to the point where its own internal resilience can't overcome the challenges. And this, I don't think, is going to be it. No. It, it, we're, I think we're going to bounce back. And, and not only will people want to be around each other again after an extended period of isolation, but all the trends that were pushing people to urbanize before are probably only going to intensify, especially as we hopefully try and build out a society that has, you know, a lower carbon footprint. And and that means more urbanization. And there'll be a lot of other things pushing that way. And, you know, hopefully we can use a bunch of the recovery uh, resources that are going to be directed towards doing stuff like that. I think, I I hope so too. And I think so. I mean, whatever you think about, for instance, Schumpeter and the concept of creative destruction and so on and so forth, if you apply some analogous concept to the moment, I think you find very quickly that whether we like it or not, this is a period of, of destruction and what's going to come from it will be a period of creativity. We're, I think we're unlikely to use the post-crisis moment to go back and build refineries or you know, to say, well, boy, we need more for how you know detached suburban homes or we need more whatever it might be i think it's going to be a matter of saying okay what's what's the next what's the next technology look like and the zeitgeist is such that i think there's hope for the things that you talk about urbanization better transit infrastructure density uh you know new environmentally friendly energy technologies and so on and so forth uh, you know, the aftermath of that, there's a chance to to rebuild a lot of that and in a way that is future forward rather yeah. than regressive. Speaking of refineries, I, I kind of figured before this that there might be one last oil boom before uh, both climate and just the march of alternative technologies finally uh, change, fundamentally change the economics so that when, but... I don't know, after this, I'm, I'm starting to think we might have passed our last oil boom. And yeah, sure, the 
the price won't be such that Alberta has to pay people to take it like they might have to if it keeps on at $3 a barrel or whatever uh, Western Canadian oil is trading for. But I think there's a decent chance that this the, the last oil booms behind us and it will kind of slowly trickle up but n- never really hit the kind of pre-2014 levels. That, that would be, I mean, I, I'm not an expert. I would have to defer, but who knows? Experts get things wrong all the time especially when it comes to predictions. So I would have, I would agree with you. And, but that raises an extraordinarily important point, which is, you know, both during this crisis and after it, we need to be very, very careful about who is being taken care of and who isn't. And when it comes to Alberta, I think this country ought to be extraordinarily careful to make sure that Alberta has a recovery plan that works and that, Albertan workers, all of them, but especially those involved in oil and gas, aren't marginalized or stigmatized or left behind. You know, there, there's a certain glee that is often taken that I find, you know, uh, it, it's a left problem. It's a broader problem, but it, it certainly see, you do see on the left that is actually anti-worker that I find really distasteful. That, you know, that there's people out there who are trying to make a living, try to make their life work, and they ought not to be left behind because they were in the oil and gas industry. We can talk about bosses a different day. <laughs> I have a lot less sympathy for the bosses. But, uh, but when it comes to, to workers and folks in the middle, uh, I, you know, we need to make sure they're not left behind in the same way that we need to make very, very carefully sure that the, the bounce back from this is equitable, that marginalized people are included in it, that we don't you know, re-victimize people who are consistently victimized by everything, including this. And that's going to have to take a real serious conversation where we all behave ourselves, which I think will be a challenge. But it's something that I'm you know, trying to track really carefully, uh, certainly among my colleagues. One thing I hope that comes out of this is a general cultural recognition that just you need to stay home from work if you're sick, even if it's just a cold. And I'm hoping we see policies that follow on from that because, I mean, I've certainly done it where, you know, I have a cold and... I don't, you know, it, it doesn't feel bad enough to not work for a day. So I go, I go in and that's probably not, it wasn't great before this whole thing. And I'm, I'm hoping, like, I'm definitely not going to be doing that after this. And I hope that that becomes a broader thing, but it, it is going to need the support on the policy level to make it so that people who are hourly and do need the, uh, the work can do it. I mean, I, I've been able to work from, I'm set up to work from home even before this, so it wouldn't have been a big deal for me, but like, there's a lot of people that isn't true for, and we don't have the infrastructure in place now for that, and that probably needs to change, both it, culturally and politically. It, it does, and it's interesting, is it, it, that is a, a microcosm of the, the broader debate, because it goes from little things like, you shouldn't have to provide a doctor's note. You should have paid sick leave without the need for a doctor's note. I mean, at least short term. Long term, obviously, is different. But you should have, you know, ample sick leave, long term, maybe unlimited paid sick leave, depending. You should need a doctor's note to take a day off. The gig economy, we're going to have to have a serious look at the gig economy and the way that we protect folks within it. Have a talk about medical insurance for those within it, both extended insurance and including dental vision, so on and so forth. I'm not, I'm, I'm not living in a world in which we don't have to pay for this. So I'm saying there's a discussion we need to have. But you know, those, are thing that, those are the things that will be on the register because this is going to lay a lot of that bare. And you know, I'm working on a piece about this right now. One of the things that this whole crisis has brought to the forefront is that we have a cultural narrative around who the essential workers are that is often assumed that they were CEOs. And very quickly we're learning that we could live – for a little while without CEOs, but we couldn't live very long without grocery clerks and truck drivers and other folks on the front line, doctors, obviously, and people that clean hospitals and nurses and so on. The people who we often don't think of as, as essential when we don't see them or need them during a crisis, but who are always there doing the work that keeps all this running. People who pick up the trash, trash collectors and so on. And, and I think we need to have a rebalancing about how we compensate, care for, but also think about those folks because uh, you know, this might sound pandering, but I don't care. It's true. 
they are the people that keep our lives going and they ought to be lauded as such and respected as such and compensated as such. And I think there's going to be an opportunity to, to shift how we think in the aftermath of, of that. Delivery people. How could we live right now without delivery people? We couldn't. Yeah, it's, it's, they've definitely stepped up quite a bit. And even then you're seeing challenges where it's tough to just deliver enough stuff. The uh, grocery delivery services are booked two, three weeks in advance. Don't tell me about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm still going in person because thankfully the grocery store is like a block from me. Uh, yay, urban density. But um, yeah, a lot of people don't have that option. And uh, it's important that that stuff gets stepped up. And I keep thinking about, you know, this crisis is really bad, but it could be a lot worse. The Nets pandemic uh, could be a lot worse than this one. You know, what happens if this had an R naught of three or four rather than kind of the 2.5 that most estimates have it? Or what if it was killing 20, 30% rather than two to six percent? And I think we're going to have to really think about what happens if we have to do this again and how do we handle it better and put in place the systems that would allow it. And, you know, maybe we need to have some sort of Canada uh, wide infrastructure in place where through whatever logistical system, you can just push out, you know, two weeks worth of food and essential supplies to everyone. um, So they don't have to actually go out and grocery shop. And there's a lot of things like that, that, I think we're going to have to think long and hard about how we're going to handle this next time because there will be a next time. Not only is climate change going to make pandemics more likely, but biotechnology is advancing at a really rapid rate. And, you know, 30 years from now, engineered pandemics might be something that you don't even need a nation state, like a smaller group of people could put together. And, we're going to have to really think hard about what happens if we do have to put a country into stasis again to, to quash a pandemic. Yeah. And, and you know, that that's the, the double challenge of, of coming up with protocols for managing these things, especially in a world that's facing several challenges at once and figuring out the, the economic side. And I think there'll be some, we what we ought not to do is conceptually separate those things. I mean, we can conceptually separate them, but we ought not to sorry separate them when it comes to policy. Because thinking about policies, because you can tell it's the end of the day here in the East Coast. <laughs> yeah, we're coming up at nine o'clock. Or just past nine o'clock your time. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I even woke up early this morning, which for me is nine thirty. But you know, as this unfolds, we might say, well, okay, we're going to come up with pandemic protocols. We're going to come up with economic and, and other policies. And my, and my argument is those are all sort of the same thing in the sense that the best way to protect a country is to have obviously rigorous, thoughtful protocols, but also to make sure that people have enough money to get through the week, the day, and so on and so forth, to save some cash, uh, to have cities uh, where people have access to food, people don't live in food deserts, to have, if we're going to have delivery folks, which we need, to make sure that they're compensated and have a right to stay home when they're sick and so on. Because all of this stuff is of one. And especially when it comes to buying into institutions, which is the the meta consideration of all of this, is that this only works if we have some belief in the state and some belief in state capacity, or it requires some pretty nasty police state measures, which we'd obviously not prefer. So, you know, what we end up needing is is a state that is inclusive. And people like me have been saying that a long time. We have, I mean, as have you, we have different perspectives on what that means, but the the principles are there. And I think there's a real chance to build consensus around programs and policies that create the conditions to manage future challenges, including pandemics um, and, and the climate crisis as well. One that's been at least a little hopeful for me is that our institutions have been quite responsive. You know, last year, I was actually pretty concerned that uh, our various institutions at both the national level and a lot more locally aren't 
really set up or responsive enough to deal with kind of 21st century problems. And we've seen them really step up in a big way and make a lot of rapid major steps quickly. And that at least makes me a little hopeful that we can, you know, make do the right things early and get ahead of the net set of problems, whether it be climate or something else. Yeah, exactly. And that comes back to the, the critical juncture point. You know, we, we've reached this. We didn't ask for this. We didn't want it. It's a tragedy, but it's also an opportunity. That's just the facts, right? I mean, tragedies are often opportunities. And that doesn't mean that the tragedy isn't tragic. It doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of pain, a lot of loss, a lot of suffering, a lot of sadness. It means that alongside all of that, there's also a chance to do better for many people going forward. And as you mentioned earlier, I mean, we've seen that in cities throughout history. We've seen that in countries throughout history. Look what happened to South Korea. I mean, South Korea is a great study right now in this. In the aftermath of the Korean War, South Korea was decimated. It was one of the poorest countries in the world. In fact, it might have been as bad as the second poorest country in the world in the 50s. By the 90s, we're talking about the Korean miracle. And and then, you know, into the 2000s, it was something like 13th in the world uh, for GDP. And now Korea is crushing it uh, in all kinds of ways. I mean, it is a sort of tech utopia and everyone's connected and uh it's the economy is strong and they're they're managing this crisis and we see that in the aftermath of crises we bounce back and sometimes end up much much better i mean that's a choice we can make so we ought to make it yeah uh so one thing that uh big crises and uh disruptive events causes a lot of people to kind of reevaluate a bunch of things at least personally i've I think put a lot more or get that I at least personally have realized that maybe we should be onshore and a lot more critical production capacity. Um, you know, if you'd asked me before whether or not it was important that Canada necessarily, you know, produced um, micro um, filters that can filter out, you know, to an N95 level, whether that was an important thing to have domestically, I probably would have said no. And going forward, I think we need to think a lot more broadly about what our critical uh, strategic manufacturing capacity is. But I'm curious, what what is the situation made you reconsider? Personally, or <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just I'm curious. Like a, I, I've seen a bunch of commentators do the now more than ever thing, and, and all the, but there's also a lot of people who I've seen kind of reassess their prior beliefs in light of this. I'm curious if you have any examples of that for you. Well, it's a little too early to tell. For but but initially, I would say as a stress test of our institutions, we've. I think responded better than I would have expected. And as a test of, of partisan skullduggery, I think the results are, are certainly encouraging, if not perfect. I've been a little bit heartened by the decency of, of a lot of people, politicians especially. And I've also been encouraged by the emergence of, of consensus around the need to act on this and take it seriously. You know, we, it's a reminder that social consensus can evolve and form extraordinarily quickly when it, when it has to. And that's, a, that's, you know, that's good. I mean, we shouldn't get, again, we shouldn't give up the friction, but it's good that that can happen. And we need that to happen because in a, in a mass society, there's a concern that it might not. The one thing, the flip side of that is we need to make sure that it doesn't allow, for instance, a, a further entrenchment of the surveillance state or, or surveillance or disaster capitalism. And that'll be the flip side challenge. But on the front side of it, I'm encouraged by by those things. Good answer. And optimistic about uh, the resiliency of our institutions. Uh, but before I let you go, uh, why don't you tell our listeners uh, where they can find you? 
Well, you can find me on uh, Twitter, David underscore Mosscrop. You can find me on Facebook, same name, on Instagram, same name. Uh, or, well, it used to be the streets of Ottawa. Now it's my apartment, so you can't <laughs> find me there. But you can also find my book, Too Dumb for Democracy, Why We Make Bad Political Decisions and How We Can Make Better Ones uh, Anywhere. Books right now are flying off the shelves. Um, you, the people are at home. <laughs> They've got some time in some cases, and they're reading, and so books are moving. So the book is available as an ebook. It's uh, available to be ordered. And I would say if you are going to order it, I would love if you consider ordering from a, a local shop because they're struggling right now, as everyone is, and it's never a bad idea to support your local independent bookseller. Dave, thanks for joining me tonight. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Scott. Well, finishing off with a couple very brief quick takes. I just want to give a quick update on a couple things we talked about earlier in the year, in the time long, long ago before this whole situation. And the march that seems to have lasted forever. Um, but recently a couple stories came out that are follow-ups to previous segments on the show that I just want to make sure didn't get missed during all of this absurdity and craziness that's going on. Uh, so first off, the BC Prosecution Service has announced they've concluded their investigation into uh, former minister and current MLA, Ginny Sims. Um They've found no uh, proof of any wrongdoing. They've closed their investigation. We still don't really know all the fine details of what prompted the complaint, but uh, prosecution services cleared her, and wouldn't surprise me if she goes back to being a minister sometime soon. Maybe after this thing straights out, maybe before that, but uh, keep an eye on that. And that has been Play Coast. Find links to everything we talked about at politicoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Politicoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.